today is from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 34. It's page 863, but I think it's up there. And it's such a fantastic reading. I think at the end of it we could manage an albeit first service subdued. Hallelujah. <laughs> Verse 31, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honour at God's right hand, pleading for us. Hallelujah. is God's word. Gracious Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we do pray that, as Meryl has uh, so aptly said, that there would be a stirring in our hearts, that this would not just be uh, an intellectual, superficial engagement with the text, but that as we reflect on the incredible promises that are here in this, in this, in this verse this morning, that our hearts would be stirred by your spirit. Lord, we, we don't want to have emotional manipulation. We want what happens in our hearts to be done by your word and the spirit coming together. And so, Lord, we open our hearts now. And, Lord, as I often pray, I pray that I would decrease and you would increase this morning so that all of the glory and the praise would go to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So have you ever said something and then you're almost lost for words, so you try and find some other words to say it, but you're struggling to find the right words, right? That's the situation this morning in Romans, in our continuing series in Romans. Paul, over this chapter 8, has been talking all throughout about these amazing and wonderful promises that we have in Jesus Christ. And it's dovetailed in with the suffering we have as Christians, all right? and particularly evident for the, that first generation of Christians in Rome. So the suffering they were going through, and then also in the midst of the suffering and difficulties of following Christ, the wonderful, amazing promises that are given to every person who truly believes. And then Paul reaches this point where he says, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? Right, so what were they, those wonderful things? We're just going to do a very quick summary of some of these promises in chapter 8, a refreshing of these wonderful things that Paul has been talking about. Right, so he mentions, uh, there's one. So now there's no condemnation for those who belong in Christ Jesus. And because you longed in the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Our minds are no longer under the influence of the sway of sin. But increasingly, we're under the spirit's influence to have greater degrees of God's peace and life and holiness and joy and so forth. And there's no condemnation, right? And then he goes on. One other wonderful promise, just 
putting it out here. Those who are dominated by the simple nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. Right, so God's Spirit is living within us. We have this new move within us that is just making an increased degrees of holiness. And then with God's Spirit living within us, we have eternal life. Uh, and Christ lives within you, so even your, though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit will give you life because you've been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, and just as God raised Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. We have eternal life, and at some point in the future, God will resurrect our bodies as well. All right, so that, that with all of this, and then it goes on, that with the God's Spirit living within us, we are now God's children. We've been adopted and accepted into God's family. Right, now remember the early church. It was made up of, in Rome, a significant number of slaves. Often they were women, and slaves in the Roman world had, legally speaking, no parents, no family. They were property, right? Chickens don't have parents and things. You don't have legal sort of things. Slaves were, the, they were just property, Right, in some cases, the, the biological fathers of the, uh, uh, of the slaves were the slave owners themselves, or the, the, the children that the slaves would have were from the management of the slave owners, because the, in the Roman world, they had a very different sexual ethic uh, than the Christian ethic, and it was a brutal, hot, harsh world where the men would do what they wished with those that were their property. And you can read that in the ancient Roman world, the letters. Casual brutality. So imagine being a slave... And that's your, that's your Monday to Saturday life with the slave owner. And then you come along and then you hear this amazing promise that we have uh, an amazing father, that, that he is our father, that we are his chosen children. This, these were incredible promises. And remember, these are promises that changed the whole Roman world. Right? So you've not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Right? You're no longer fearful slaves, but you have received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. You've got a dad, the best dad in the whole world, and it is the heavenly father. And now we call him Abba, Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his ears, ears of God Almighty. In fact, together with Christ, we're ears of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. Just imagine what that message would have been electrifying in that first century context. And of course, it talks about this experiential sense of God's love would be poured out into the hearts of the early believers. So often I think one of the downfalls of uh, old Western Christianity in the last five or six hundred years is people can have gone to church their entire life and they've never once encountered the love of God. They never once had their hearts strangely warmed, as Wesley had said. Of course, Wesley, by that stage, had been a, a, a Church of England vicar. He'd been a missionary, but he'd never encountered the love of God. Very religious, but not once knowing Jesus as his Lord and Savior and having his heart warmed by the Holy Spirit. Well, this here is what Paul's getting at. Our hearts know we are children of God. And so the early Christians, you know, whether it's a Pentecostal, you know, charismatic, whatever wish, word you wish to use, they knew in their heart of hearts, that they were children of the living God. And it was, it was something they were willing to take with them, even if they were to be persecuted and killed. So there's an experiential element to that. All right, so it's worth asking, have I encountered the love of God? Have you? Do you know Jesus? And it goes on. 
And then, then what, what now we suffer is nothing compared to the glory he'll reveal to us later. We believe it's also grown. Yes, life's tough. Even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of this future glory. So the church in Rome and the subsequent believers, sometimes we suffered, sometimes terribly. But that suffering is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed to us later. And every single believer who calls on the name of the Lord gets a foretaste, a deposit, a down payment of that right now. And it's that life, that joy, that is untouchable by circumstances, untouchable by enemies. That if you lose your house, your health, your family, you cannot lose your treasure because your treasure is in Christ and it is untouchable. Right? And then it goes on talking about the wonderful fact that the Holy Spirit pleads for us. Right? He helps us in our weakness. We don't know how to pray. At times we just groan at the difficulties of life. And when we groan, God prays for us. Right? Incredible. The Father who knows uh, all our hearts prays for us in harmony with God's will. So there's almost a crescendo. And Meryl's picked this up. It's like she just said, wow, look at these wonderful promises. It's great reading. You know, and Meryl's got the, you know, she's a very level-headed, she's not the very exciting, but she picked, she's picked, she's correctly picked it up this morning. Sorry for, for, for mentioning Meryl this morning, but she's actually got it. She's got the heart of it. That Paul is in a crescendo here. And, and it's incredible, and, 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 and it's, it's wanting my heart, at least, to be touched with what's going through. There's a crescendo of wonderful promises, and it's building up, and then uh, uh, it's getting closer to this top here, and this is probably getting right to the peak, and then he summarizes it. And this one, and then we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You imagine being a slave or a poor person facing death, brutality of a slave owner, that cruel and vicious world of the Roman that first century. right? And then you're hearing this, that no matter what happens in your life, God will work this out for good. And he's got a plan, and you're his child, and these promises are yours. Right? And they believe this. Right? There's a lot of people in the West, you know, we have total luxury, and we were like, no, I don't know about that, you know, suffering. Well, these, they had the, the worst of everything, and they believed these promises, and it changed the Roman world. And so then Paul, he's going back, and he's like, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? How do I reframe this in a way that breaks through hardened hearts? That softens people to the truths and wonderful promises of the gospel. Right? So what can I say? Now, you know, it, it's, and he goes on. So he says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Now, remember, this is like, at one level, is crazy talk. Right? You've got to picture Rome, first century. At the end of Romans, you see all the ones he's writing to. Just imagine the, the Christians... It, it, it's, it's like he's saying the Christians are so powerful they won't have any enemies. Well, the opposite is true. The Christians of the first century were a despised minority who were mercilessly killed. Right, so this letter was written, in, uh, to give you, I hope you can bear with me my love of history, but this letter was written in AD 57. Seven years later, there was the Great Fire in AD 64. Do you remember the Great Fire? You may not live through it, of course, of AD 64, but you may remember the Great Fire of Rome and Nero. And Nero was the emperor. And during that great fire, that great conflagration that burned up, who did Nero pin the blame for the fire on? Do you know your history? On the Christians. That's right. And so Tacitus, 
right? You know, this is, of course, politics 101. If you're a politician, the prime minister, and things aren't, aren't happening, you've got to find someone to pin the blame on, on the reasons. It was this crisis, it was this reason, it was their past government or whatever. Uh, politics 101. And so Nero uh, knew, his, knew his politics, and he blamed the, the, the fire on Christians. And so the Roman historian Tacitus, who also utterly despised Christians, he just... He called the Christians' love for one another abominations, the Christian sexual ethic of a man and a woman loving each other and having children and slaves having value. This is evil abomination stuff. But this is what Tacitus said, famous, very intelligent historian. Uh, but, of, but all human efforts of all the lavish gifts of the Emperor Nero and the propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration, the burning of Rome in AD 64, was the result of an order given by Nero himself. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures. Remember, this is Romans saying this. When they say exquisite tortures, they mean really bad stuff. On a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procreators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, Again, broke not only in Judea, the first source of this terrible evil, but even in Rome itself, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Uh, and, uh, and I'll get the next one. Ooh. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all Christians who pleaded guilty to being believers. Upon their, their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not, much, not so much for the crime of firing the city, is of their hatred against mankind. Imagine that Christian value is seen as hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths, covered with skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished. They were nailed to crosses or doomed to flames and burnt alive to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Tacitus Annals, 1544. Seven years, seven years from the writing of Paul giving his letter so I'm picking a, a, a number out here. It, it's, a, it's a guess, my guess. 75% of the original congregation who heard Paul's letter, that was going to be their fate. Right? But Tacitus has said that was going to happen. A vast multitude. We're talking about one or two thousand. And Paul says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? The world's against us. Well, how could Paul say such a thing? Yet for Paul, who died under Nero's persecution, what he was really getting at is means successfully against us. The worst they can do is kill us, basically he's saying. The worst the world can do is kill a Christian. But if we've got God on our side, ultimately we have victory in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, if you have the Lord on the side, then who can ultimately be against you? Of course, I'm sure this would have shocked Tacitus and Nero, but within a couple of centuries, that mischievous superstition was going to overtake the Roman world and would change the, the ethics of the Roman Empire in many ways for the better. The power of God's love and Christian values, right, called abomination, would change the world. And today, hundreds of millions of Christians who are living in poverty, who have absolutely nothing, or they're being utterly persecuted for their faith, this stuff is very encouraging. If God is for us, ultimately, who can be against us? I think for Christians in the West who live at the moment, who knows for how much longer, lives of incredible wealth and freedom, this is bracing stuff. Is Jesus enough? 
Is he our greatest treasure? If God is for us, then who can be against us? What shall we say of these wonderful things? Since he did not spare, and I've done that twice, since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? All right, this is incredible. He's died, he's died for us. Yes, life is tough. But if he's given us his son, God himself coming to die for us, then won't he ultimately grant us everything we need to become Christ-like, everything that is ultimately good for us? So the Christian slaves and those who were the first listeners, in 57, most of whom I presume would die in AD 64, they didn't see these all things as wealth and power, but they saw it as God's spirit and who they had encountered and been filled with, that changed their life that God was going to give them everything they needed to get through the difficulties and suffering and opposition we face here in this life. And he would take us through like a pilgrim's progress or Psalm 23, you know, through the valley of the shadow of death, that sort of imagery he was going to take us through into eternal life. And then he goes on. All right, who dares accuses us from whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Now again, of course, lots of people were accusing the early Christians. They were being accused in Roman courts. And if the, lawyer, the Christian lawyers didn't defend them, they accused the, the Christian lawyers and put the lawyers as well in the, in the Colosseum. It was a tough life being a Christian lawyer in the first, first centuries. But what he's getting at is if you have God ultimately on his throne, and he is the highest authority, the Supreme Court. It doesn't matter what the lower courts have. So imagine that you had a court case, and you had against you, and you, the police said that they think you're guilty, and they brought a prosecution. And you're before the district court, and the district judge says guilty as charged. So you appeal and go to the high court, and the high court says guilty as charged. And you appeal and go to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court unanimously says innocent. Well, if that's the case, who cares what the police, the lower court, and the high court think? Because the Supreme Court has spoken. And that is exactly the same sort of image. God is the highest throne. And if he has decided, it's decided. It's, we have been thinking, I, I remember um, uh, myself that um, I was, uh, when I was a, a young lad, I'm not suggesting parents should, um, you know, parents, it's always good for mum and dad to be agreed on disciplining kids. But back in the day, we are, this is the first service. So who remembers the days of the straps? Yeah, that's the, first. the second service, uh, they probably won't remember. I remember. My dad with the strap. He had the strap because he was a high school te teacher. It was the one that was used uh, in the school in the old disciplinary days. And so it was applied to me uh, fairly unjustly, may I hasten to add, by my father uh, for various misdemeanors that I made through my growing up years. But I remember one time when I had, when I had transgressed the law of my parental home, and my loving and dad, who's now with the Lord, was going to give me the strap, which I had deserved. And there at the right hand of my father was my mum pleading my case. Right? And this was the sense in which actually you get to see this here with the text here. Right? Then who will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus has died for us. He raised to life for us. He's sitting at the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Now, of course, we know I'm aware of Trinity theology. The Trinity is entirely agreed in its love for us. It's an image that I've given here. But it's a sense of Jesus at the right hand. If we've got the highest court that's freed us, if we've got Jesus at our side, then does it really matter if you have family members, ex-friends, ex-relationships, 
people in society, the media, the politicians, accuse us, condemn us, and say we're an abomination like Tacitus said of those early Christians. Right? Away to the lion, says Tacitus to the Christians. But if we've got Jesus at our side, not condemning us, then what does it matter? And so this was the crescendo of promises that was coming out, that God's word was bringing, that was aiming to stir the heart. And it's my prayer that the Holy Spirit has done a little bit of that this morning in you this morning. That it's not me or any, any gift of eloquence that I have. It's the promises of God. And I may I suggest that you'll know this will be the case when the next lot of suffering or difficulty comes your way. And if you really have grasped hold of these promises, then in that suffering, these promises will see you through as they did for the early church, where most of those first hearers were facing what Tacitus said, her most exquisite of tortures. Because the gospel advanced and the church of Rome grew and then eventually took over the Roman world. May it do so here in Geraldine as well. Gracious Lord, we pray that you would enable your promises to stir again in our hearts. That, Lord Jesus, that we would uh, uh, be softened to you Lord, we pray that this would take place in the first and the second service. We've got 30 newcomers coming, a number of people, a few have given their lives to the Lord. We pray that, Lord, these promises that are in your word would take, ignite again in this church, in our lives, and that we would reflect on these wonderful promises that we have been given. And that, Lord, it would carry us through the difficulties and sufferings we face in life. In Jesus' name, amen.